turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. <clears throat> Several of you have uh, asked who I am. My bio is in the, the bulletin. I am probably the only speaker here who has the honor of having flunked out of college. Um, so you can, you can read my bio. But let me kind of give you a, an outline of where we're going to go. I'm going to start off with a, a brief personal testimony and then we're going to go straight to the cross, and we're going to spend most of our time at the cross, and then I'm going to finish the story. So as Paul Harvey would say, there's the rest of the story, right? Some of us, I guess most of us are old, old enough to remember that, but so that's an outline of where we are, where we're going. So I want to take you back to March of 2019, just about 11 months ago. I was on a business trip in Dallas. And I walked into my hotel room, and it was as if Tiger Woods hit me in the chest with a nine iron. The pain went up the left side of my neck and down my, my left arm. Felt like someone stuck an ice pick in the center of my back. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't breathe. And even though it was a bluebird day like today and the blinds were, were open... The walls began to close in, and everything went black. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I'll come back to that in a minute. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more of my weaknesses. So that, purpose clause, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Father, we bow our heads this morning before the God who reigns over all. Father, you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator and sustainer of all that is. You are shrouded in light, insufferably bright, majestic, and glorious in your majesty. And so, Father, we come before you as deeply broken, fallen, needy men whose only claim is grace, that you have by your unmerited favor taken the initiative to call us out of darkness into your marvelous light, and now as sons of the King of kings, Lord, We open your word, and we go to the cross, Father. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, Father, it is your power. John Newton, the converted slave trader who became a preacher and a Christian poet, lay upon his deathbed. A young clergyman visited and expressed regret at the prospect of losing so eminent a laborer in the Lord's vineyard. 
Newton replied, true, I'm going on ahead of you, but you'll soon come after me. When you arrive, our friendship will no doubt cause you to inquire of me. But I can tell you already where you'll most likely find me. I'll be sitting at the feet whom, the, whom Jesus saved in his dying moments on the cross. The author of Amazing Grace set his perspective. He lifted his eyes from the foot of the cross. I think we must conclude that Newton got it right. His perspective was calibrated by grace. At the end of his life, John Newton, the author of one of the best-known hymns in the history of the church, Amazing Grace, recognized that grace qualified him only to sit at the feet of the criminal whom Jesus had saved in the cross. Jesus had said to that criminal, criminal, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Grace is more than love. Grace is love set absolutely free. And that's what we find at the cross. And I think that we would do well to contemplate the words that the criminals said to each other either side of Jesus that Friday on the cross. The one criminal said to him, why don't you save us? You've saved others, why don't you save us? But not the criminal on his other side. He said, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. You see, that criminal had a proper perspective, a proper perspective. It was Jesus' sinless perfection set against the backdrop of a Roman cross. And against that injustice... The thief saw his own unrighteousness and that his death was justified. So what does this have to do with lifting our eyes? I think everything. Perspective matters. How we view something, a person, or an event depends upon the perspective that we see it. And nowhere is this more essential than when we lift our eyes toward God. That's what Paul is describing in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he writes, But he, that is Jesus, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. For when I am weak, when I am weak, that word weak can mean ill to the point where you, all of your energy is drained out of you. You have no ability in yourself. When I am weak, then... I am strong. So Paul here, what's amazing about this scene is Paul is saying this against the backdrop of having been caught up to the third heavens. He describes that earlier in the chapter. Fourteen years ago, he knew a man who was caught up into the third heavens. That is the abode of God. The first heavens, the atmosphere, the second, the stars and the galaxies, the third heavens, the abode of God, and he saw things there that were unlawful, about A.D. 43. The only thing we know from Paul's hand during that time is one line out of the book of Galatians. Then I went into the regions of Syria 
in Cilicia. Now, can you imagine if one of us were caught up to the third heavens? Can you imagine the, post, the Facebook posts <laughs> and the Instagrams? I was caught up to the third heavens. We'd have thousands, maybe millions of followers. People would make pilgrimages to see where it took place. We'd hit the speaking circuit. But not the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul only unveiled this ecstatic vision because the gospel, the good news that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried, and that Christ was raised from the dead according to the scriptures and appeared, the gospel was in jeopardy. And so Paul shares that experience. But a biblical lifting of our eyes A true transformative vision of God can only be initiated by God, and the result will be a posture of humility. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, that's metamorphe, change of form, from the inside out by the power of the Spirit, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see, beholding is a way of becoming. We become like that which we behold. And as we behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we look full into his beautiful face and his marvelous grace, he changes us. The goal of this weekend is transformation. It's change. That we may lift our eyes. Have you ever watched a child play? I have three children. And when you watch a child play, where do they look? They're navigating stairs. They're running over boulders. Their eyes are up. But as we get older, our eyes fall down. And that's the transformation. That's the change that Paul is talking about, but our tendency, the problem with us as sinners is we begin with ourselves. We behold ourselves, the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. <clears throat> and William Ernest Henley, in his, his poem, Invictus, writes, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. That's the starting point of fallen man. But all of us tend to go back there, don't we? We think that we can do it in our own strength. We think that we have the unconquerable soul. Every man in the Bible who has beheld the Lord has done so from a posture of humility. Think of Moses, Exodus chapter 3. He comes upon the burning bush, and Yahweh Lord says to him, Remove your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Or what about Isaiah? In Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And they cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And he said, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I come from people of unclean lips. Or Peter, when he's in the boat with Jesus in Luke 5, and they push out into deep water, and 
Jesus says, let down your net for a catch, and Peter pulls in the large catch, and he realizes he's in the boat with the God-man, and he says, away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Do you know you're a sinner? I mean, really know it? Really know it. But is this the picture we have in our minds when we think of a strong Christian? If you have a view of someone who's a strong Christian, would you say they take pleasure? That word means utter delight in weaknesses and in insults and in calamities and persecutions and difficulties endured for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Is that the resume that we look for for someone in ministry? I think we have more of an idea of a strong Christian was out of something out of a Marvel movie like I haven't seen many of them, but we put on the cape, leap over buildings with a single bound, we can stop a locomotive, nothing can keep us down, right? That's the idea, whether we say it or not, that we have of a strong Christian. But don't forget that the strongest, bravest man who ever lived was falsely accused, illegally tried, mocked, spit upon, and crucified on a Roman cross. Out of his weakness, Christ's weakness... He did away with sin, conquered death, and will ultimately restore fallen creation. Paul puts it this way. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I want you to listen to the last line of Henley's poem, Invictus Against Those Words. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Brothers, this morning, are you at the foot of the cross? Are you broken? Inadequate? Weak? Or are you the captain of your soul? Um... When I was in high school, I worked on a ranch not far from here, and we built roads through the the hill country, and we had a transit level, and we had a stake, and we would go out there, and we'd calibrate the transit level that we shoot the roads in according to the topographical maps to make sure that we're navigating our way through, and calibrating that transit level was crucial to navigating where we were going to build the roads. I want to calibrate our transit level this morning. At the foot of the cross, and we're going to go to look at at the foot of the. We're going to look at the cross from three perspectives. We're going to look at the cross from the perspective of the Last Supper. Then we're going to go into the garden and look at the cross from Gethsemane, and then finally we're going to look at the cross from the perspective of Jesus's last cry. And then I'm going to pick the story up and finish where I started. So first of all, the Last Supper. Now, Jesus would take his last meal from the seclusion of an upper room. And you can see Jesus and the apostles reclining at a low table. But there was no Gentile slave there to wash their feet. And so Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. It was an illustration of what he was going to do at the cross. He was going to empty himself. He'd be laid bared, bare after being beaten and mocked. 
spit upon, a crown of thorns jammed upon his head, blood running down his face. And Jesus now in the upper room prepares the disciples for that, and he wants, to know, he wants them to know two things. First, the centrality of his death. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. And on the cross, he did that. The second was the purpose of his death. Jesus' blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Well, the supper ends, and Jesus has instructed his apostles that they must abide in him as the branch abides in the vine. For he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He lets them know they'll face tribulation and persecution, but through all the hardship, he will be with them to the end. He is their keeper. Say it with me. He is their keeper. So in the soft light of the Paschal moon, they cross the Kidron Valley, they go up onto the Mount of Olives, and they turn into a garden called Gethsemane, which means olive press. It's where the olives would be pressed and the oil would be drawn out. Jesus leaves most of the disciples behind and retreats deeper into the garden where he is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now the authors go to extreme lengths here to take us into the inner emotional life of the Lord. I'm going to get technical on you for just a minute and then I'll pull us back out. And I tell you, as I was studying this, I couldn't stay here for long. It was overwhelming. But Luke uses a word, agonia, which means consternation or appalled reluctance, A-G-O-N-I-A. Matthew and Mark employ the word adamonio, or troubled. This carries the meaning of loathing, aversion mixed with despondency. When combined, these words point to Jesus' acute emotional pain resulting in a physical response of profuse sweat mixed with blood. See why I couldn't stay here very long? What elicited such a response? Was it fear of death? Was it the horror of crucifixion? Absolutely not. The answer is in the text itself. Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The cup is a reference to the, to the horror of our sin and the judgment it deserves. Jesus' prayer, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, provides the reason for his deep sorrow. The cup symbolizes God's wrath against human sin, your sin and my sin. And so our perspective as we come to the cross must be must include the gravity of our sin. Jeremiah writes, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Brothers, our sin is like an iceberg. We only see the top 
But the good news is that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, everyone, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So now we move from the garden out to Golgotha. And we're going to see our final perspective before I return to the story. Here's what fascinated me as I was studying this. Luke writes, when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. There they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, just four words to describe the single most important event in history. Four words. The emphasis in Matthew's account is on the abuse hurled upon him as he hung on the cross. He saved others, but can't he save himself? John focuses on Jesus' care for his mother and his final words, I thirst, and to Telestai, it is finished, or paid in full. But Mark emphasizes the darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, and it was then when darkness covered the earth that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is there that he cries into the darkness. At the birth of the Son of God, there was brightness at midnight. At the death of the Son of God, there was darkness at noon. But the final words that were spoken at the foot of the cross were by a centurion, a man who was trained in torture and in death. He was a man who knew how to prolong crucifixion long enough so that the victim was utterly ruined. And he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So it's at the cross that we see God's unmerited favor and His inflexible justice meeting in infinite love. This is what Paul took delight in. And so the weaker I get, the stronger I become. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. I'll pick the story back up. I need to give you some context or some background leading up to that day in March. Um, I, was, I was responsible for, for the last five years or so of leading three of our largest divisions. I had about 4,000 professionals that I looked after. And our CEO asked me to take on an innovative technology project on January 20th, 2017. Now, for those in the room, I, I, I can't turn on a computer. But I was asked to take on this innovative technology project because I'd been building businesses inside the company for 30 years. So I was essentially doing three jobs. So that was layer one of the pressure. But there were some others, other pressures. I was working on a second master's degree from Dallas Seminary, which I would finish in August of 2017. I have three children. Um, my youngest, Riley, whom some of you know, Franklin knows him, um, has Down syndrome, but he also has Hirschsprung's disease. And so he had his 17th surgery in January of this year, five of those out of state. That was pressure. Married to Angie for 34 years. Not a lot of pressure, if she asks. Um, <clears throat> but there were also ministry pressures. Um, I was teaching at Wayside Stone Oak Campus. Um, 
Angie and I were very involved in the special needs community. I traveled to Kigali, Africa with Will and Michael, Todd at ACT. I loved every moment of it, every moment of it, every moment of it. I loved it. But the cumulative weight was leading to a breaking point that I didn't see coming. It blindsided me. I did not see this coming. Um, So now fast forward to March of 2019. Um, The weekend before, I headed to Dallas on that Monday, and I had traveled the week before, and I had arrived home on Thursday night. I took my packed suitcase, put it in the closet, and every time I walked back into the closet, I just felt the energy draining from my body, the fatigue. It was like I was walking through wet concrete. Well, we went to church. On, I taught Sunday morning, uh, went to lunch with the family, and then I caught a flight out. And I made the mistake on Monday morning of picking my phone up about 6 a.m., and the emails were just blowing up. Uh, the technology that we had launched in beta across 10 markets that it had gone offline, it was a complete and utter uh, disaster. And so that day, we were, I was I'm sitting on the board for the Hendricks Center at Dallas Seminary. We were putting on a conference for 600 pastors, and I was late to the pastor conference. Um, it was packed, and I stood at the back, and there was a, a panel of speakers. And one of the, one of the men, a, a professor from Wheaton College, was talking about burnout. And he was so burned out that he would have to lie down between lectures, uh, between classes, he ended up leaving and, and taking a, uh, a one-year sabbatical. Afterward, I made a beeline for him, and I walked up there, and he took one look at me, and he said, Steve, you are burned out. You need to back off. You're shaving years off your life. I walked outside. All of the pastors were seated on the grass there on the lawn eating their lunch, and I called my boss and quit my job. Um, I don't remember how I got from the campus at Dallas Seminary to the hotel where we were hosting a gala that night for 650 supporters of the seminary. But that's when I walked into the hotel room and it hit me. So the gala started at 6.30. I came to my senses about 6.25, got my suit on and headed down into the conference area. I was so disoriented that I went into the, to the overflow room. There were about 20 students in the overflow room, and I thought that's where the gala was being held. I thought, well, maybe people decided not to come. Um, and Amanda found me from the center, from the Hendricks Center, and she came and she said, Steve, you're, you're seated at the head table. She took me around behind in the green room, and I sat down next to Dr. Yarbrough, who's the, he's currently president of Dallas Seminary. And he, he said, Steve, I'd like to, I would like to introduce you to Chuck and Cynthia Swindoll. And I looked to my left, and there was Dr. Swindoll, and there was a pause in the program, and I asked Dr. Swindoll, I said, Dr. Swindoll, if you were sitting next to yourself at age 56, what piece of advice would you give? He put down his fork and his knife, and in that stentorian voice, he said, Steve, when the Lord has an impossible task, he takes an impossible man and breaks him and makes the impossible possible. Now, you have to understand that I'd never met the man before. He had no idea that my soul had cracked and that I was watching myself from about 20 feet away, that it was everything I could do just simply to to take a step and, and move forward. I would spend the next two or three days uncontrollably weeping. I 
couldn't control the weeping. I went to my doctor. By the way, it's a real easy way to get an appointment with your doctor. You call the doctor, I a nine iron in the chest, ice pick in the back, pain down my left arm. You get your appointment right away. Um, but he wanted to see me. He ran the EKG, blood work, no markers. He said, Steve, you're in perfect health. You've had a psychosomatic breakdown. Suke, soul, soma, body, psychosomatic crack. Um, it's like a GFCI, ground force control indicator. If you plug too many appliances into the outlets, what's going to happen? GFI is going to pop. If you keep doing it, the GFI is going to wear out. You have to replace it. Mine wore out. Um, my boss refused to accept my resignation. Um, <laughs> and I, uh, I took 84 days off. I took an 84-day sabbatical. And um, I spent the first 30 days getting healthy, um, learning how to be present with my family again. The next 30 days I spent in as, as much as you can with a 14-year-old special needs medically dependent child. But I spent uh, the next 30 days uh, solitude, silence, prayer, journaling. I filled out, wrote three long journal journals. And then the last couple of weeks I spent focused on what I want to do with the rest of my life. It was a, it was a rich time and I learned a lot. But here's the point I want you to take home and take into your small groups. Everyone has a breaking point. Every one of us has a breaking point. And I was enjoying everything I was doing. I loved serving in the community. Angie and I were on six different charity boards. I loved teaching in Africa with Will and Michael Loudermilk. I, I loved teaching at Stone Oak with Will Davis. Um, I enjoyed all of it. enjoyed my family, coaching my kids' sports. But the cumulative effect of all of that over time broke me. And it has been wonderful. I cannot tell you the joy of being broken. Now, I've, I've taught the Bible for just over 27 years. And I've preached and taught on brokenness. I had no idea what I was talking about. No idea. And the joy that comes from having absolutely zero resources in myself is inexpressible and full of glory. Everything is of Christ. Everything is of Christ. The, hard, the most difficult part of my day is getting out of the Word in the morning and going to work. Walking with Him talking with him, depending upon him for every beat of my heart, every breath that I take, and recognizing that I have no control over my life, I have no control over situations. It is all of Christ. So I want to conclude with just a couple of thoughts. Um, Paul's recurring theme is the way of weakness. If you read his 13 letters, it's the way of weakness. And the idea is one of comprehensive inadequacy in ourselves and this, the complete sufficiency of Christ. J.I. Packer, who, by the way, has taught right down the street here for the last almost 30 years. J.I. Packer wrote, In this fallen world where original sin in the form of pride, ambitious independence, and deep-level egocentricity has infected everyone, we all crave to be admired for strength in something 
And the expectation that it is not going to happen makes one feel like a punctured balloon and plants bitterness in one's heart. But Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He doesn't say you can't do some things. Or maybe you can do these things. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Comprehensive, universal, negative. And so the perspective of the godly man is based on a posture of humility at the foot of the cross. And my prayer is that as we invest today, I hope you will invest today, some time in silence and solitude at the foot of the cross. For the psalmist said, if I lift up my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Let's pray. Father, we confess with you, we agree that apart from you, we can do nothing. But we praise you, Father, that you have sent your your spirit to indwell us. You have given us your word. You have given us this community of, of men and of believers. We are adequately supplied. And so, Father, I pray that we would see that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. And, Father, if there is anyone here this morning who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ savingly, has not believed on Him whom to know is life eternal, that You would draw them to Yourself, Father. That they would seek after a personal relationship in our beloved Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.